Hey folks, Jared here. We are closing out Regional Strategies Week here at Simsec, so we brought in a pair of guests, Abhiji Singh and Colin Ko, to discuss the Indian-Chinese balance of power amidst the conflict over the line of actual control. I want to preface the episode with our usual disclaimer that all opinions are our own and not representative of any institutions with which we might otherwise be associated. I also want to advertise for Project Trident's next challenge, our fiction contest in concert with the U.S. Naval Institute. Assembled an all-star cast of judges, but submissions are due 30th September, so get them in now. You can find more information on our website at simsec.org. Finally, as always, we want to advertise and strongly recommend our friends in the Simsec Podcast Network and our second podcast feed, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Strack, Jamie, and a pile of empty iron brew bottles on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever else you download your podcasts. It's a more low-key, slightly less serious approach to current events in the maritime domain and naval history. Check them out wherever you download. With that, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome aboard Sea Control. Today, we're discussing the maritime balance of power between India and China with our guests Abhiji Singh and Colin Ko. Gentlemen, welcome. Abhiji, we had you on earlier for Sea Control 185 on the Bay of Bengal. Could you reintroduce yourself to the listeners, please? Thank you, Jared. I'm a senior fellow at the Observer Research Foundation and head of the Maritime Policy Initiative. I've spent two decades in the Indian Navy, where I served in uh, leading frontline warships. And I was also part of the Doctrine Center, where I was involved in the writing of the 2007 Indian Maritime Strategy. So I spent the last few years of my career in think tanks, which is the Institute for Defense Studies and Analysis, IDSA, and the National Maritime Foundation. I have since uh, 2016 been with the ORF. I specialize in maritime security, but I've also done some work on maritime governance, shipbuilding, blue economy, you know, commercial shipping issues, etc. And I'm very happy to be here on the program. Absolutely. And we're really glad to have you back. And Colin, you were joining us for the very first time. Would you mind giving the listeners a little bit about your background? Thank you, Jared, for inviting me to this program. And good to have Abhijit together with me on the same panel. Share a bit about myself. I'm Colin Cole, and I work as a research fellow at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies that is based in Singapore. For the past 10 years or more, I've been working on maritime security, largely focusing on Southeast Asia. And by extension, it also means having to look at the South China Sea. And, you know, because of the very interesting position of Southeast Asia, by dint of its geography, I look at the surrounding uh, neighbors as well to a certain extent. So I look at China to a rather huge extent due to its uh, influence on Southeast Asia uh, and on Southeast Asia's maritime security. Because maritime security is very broad. So I focus largely on what they call the hard security aspect looking at naval arms build-up, looking at confidence building and security building measures, and practical security cooperation between maritime forces at sea. So that's all for myself, and thanks so much for having me here. Well, thank you again both for coming on. And what really sparked me to pursue the topic was actually an article written by you, Abhiji, and it's linked in our show notes, but it's titled, Will the India-China Border Conflict Lead to a Naval War? So your article mm. followed an incident along the line of actual control or LOAC in the mountainous area along the India-China border that resulted in the death of 20 Indian soldiers. So I'd like you to ask first to give us a little bit of history and how did the LOAC come to be? Right. So the LOAC or the LAC, as it's popularly known in uh, India, the line of actual control, is often misunderstood as this dividing line between India and China and the Himalayas. What it is in reality is a loosely defined demarcation zone that separates, you know, the Indian controlled territory from the Chinese controlled zone. And now India considers the LAC to be almost 3,500 kilometers long. The Chinese, although, considered to be only 2,000 kilometers long, which means that there is about a section of 1,500 kilometers that's disputed. So the LSE is divided into three sections. There is a eastern sector that's demarcated by the less disputed McMahon line. Then there's the middle sector, which is also more or less settled. But the really contentious section is the western sector in Ladakh, where the present you know, standoff has happened. This LAC, as it were, it actually goes back a long time. It was, it was back in 1959 when the Chinese premier 
Uh, Zhao Enlai had first proposed this, and this was reiterated after the 1962 war. China said that this is the line, this is our traditional line that we consider, the customary traditional line from which we decide what which side of the line is India and, and China. India, of course, did not come to accept this. In 1993, however, India and China did formally recognize the existence of the LSE, and this was through a bilateral agreement that happened on two sides. Now, it's interesting that even though we agreed to an LSE, there was no concrete settlement on ground positions, which means that the alignment of the LSE was never quite clear. Now, it is this, you know, variation in interpretations of the alignment that has led to the present conflict. So what happened this time around is that in early May, Chinese troops crossed over onto the Indian side of the LSE on multiple points. And this resulted in a sort of a massive incursion, the likes of which has have not been seen since the, since the 1962 war. This, in a few weeks' time, in June, uh, precipitated in a clash in northern Galwan, at a pla- uh, northern Ladakh, at a place called Galwan, which resulted in the death of 20 Indian soldiers and reportedly also some Chinese troops. Now, since then, there have been a series of high-level military and political-level dialogues even as both sides have tried to uh, jockey for favorable positions along the uh, disputed line. So what we have now is competitive peak capturing. Both sides are going to sort of take favorable positions from where they have a clear view of the other side, clear view of the adversary, as it were. And so both, uh, both armies have reinforced their positions. But it's the Chinese that actually have the better of the exchange because they have come to occupy large tracts of disputed territory on the Indian side. So earlier this month, the external affairs minister, Mr. Jayashankar, met up with the Chinese foreign minister, Wang Yi, in Moscow, and they reached a five-point consensus on reducing military deployments on the border and building trust. But, you know, what's really happened is that the Indian side has come out very unhappy with that five-point consensus, because really there is no clarity on the specifics, no understanding of how the government is really, you know, how how it intends to implement that agreement and, and ensure that China is pushed back to the position that it was before the start of the, of the skirmish, which means that there is no mention of restoration of status quo. What is even more galling for some Indian observers is that there is no mention of the LAC by itself. What it mentions is just border areas. It says in very general and generic terms that there shall be peace. We should try, we will try and maintain peace along the border areas. And that, again, really makes really no sense. You know, some have said this is really diplomatic gibberish, which actually validates China's possessions on the Indian side of the line. So that is where we stand at the moment. It's a standoff. It's a it's an eyeball to eyeball situation in some places. But China has the better of us in along the contested uh, line in, in, in Ladakh. Colin, let me ask you, I understand that your interests are primarily in the maritime domain, but how much do you pay attention to something like the dispute? Over the, mm. uh, over the Loak or Lack, uh, mm. given its potential to, mm. to spark a conflict that could spill over into the maritime domain. Yes, thank you so much, Jared. And Abhijit, you have you know, given a very great overview of uh, the dispute. And hereby, I will just put in uh, what we will deem as a Southeast Asian uh, perspective to that. I think there are a few things we have to bear in mind is Southeast Asia is smack right in between India and China uh, geographically. And because of that, when there is a dispute between China and India, Southeast Asian countries will have to be concerned. Not just because of geography, but because of the fact that both Asian giants, key economic and diplomatic partners of Southeast Asia. And I mean, one thing is that uh, both China and India are dialogue partners of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN. And they have been playing key roles in terms of economic development, in terms of connectivity, in terms of you know promoting regional integration. So when these two giants fight, basically Southeast Asia is put in a rather interesting position. Thing is, end of day, if this border dispute is going to you know erupt into a war. Southeast Asia is going to inevitably become one of the battlegrounds. The maritime domain will be the key area where these, all this is going to happen and it's going to put Southeast Asian countries in the spot. And I refer you to you know, key battlegrounds around the key strategic choke points in Southeast Asia. We're talking about the Malacca Strait. We're talking about the, the more southerly straits of the Indonesian archipelago, such as uh, the Makassar Strait, Lombok Strait. These 
key choke points will be areas where we'll potentially see the extension of the Sino-Indian land border dispute or land border war spill over into a contestation for you know sea control access to shipping. Uh, because China ultimately requires, uh, you know, the continuation uh, of shipping through the Indian Ocean, carrying, you know, vital energy supplies from Middle East and Africa to feed the Chinese economy back home. And this is going to become an area of contention uh, when if we are looking at the extension of the land border dispute into the maritime dimension. And the bigger question that we have to confront is if this is going to be the eventuality that's going to happen, then will Southeast Asian countries remain neutral? Not too long ago, I think just um, one day ago, two days ago, there is an article that came out in the South China Morning Post that asked the same question with respect to Southeast Asia, with respect to a Sino-US conflict. But if it applies to a Sino-Indian conflict, the same question applies as well. And the, the bigger question is, who should we, you know, what actions should we take? Should we undertake naval actions in support of who in the first place? So I think these are questions that we have to confront. And I, I believe, you know, the policymakers in Southeast Asia wouldn't want to really entertain the thought. And, you know, you, I, I would surmise that, you know, the best outcome that people will have is both Asian giants will remain rational and they will try their best to keep things under control and not escalate. And things will be just as normal. But you know, the bigger question is in the future, what is in store for us? So these will be questions that we have to confront. And you know, if you ask me honestly, I don't think policymakers in Southeast Asia had really gone deep into answering those questions themselves. Thank you. Uh, I should say for the listeners, we are recording this on September 19th in the U.S., September 20th uh, for my two guests. As we're referring to this week or one or two days ago, that gives you some sense of the time frame. So one week intervening, if we've missed any events in the last week, that's that's why you're hearing us miss those. Abhiji, I'm going to come back to you. I, I'm not going to ask you to describe India-China relations since 1962, and you've already expounded quite a bit on the line of actual control, but how have relations been since approximately 2000 or so when China really started to accelerate its naval expansion program? So Jared, uh, just line or two on uh, India-China relations. And I think what's happened in the past two or three decades is that whilst India and China have worked together on several occasions and have been happy to cooperate on certain issues, there has always been a lack of trust in the relationship. And that, I think, goes back to the 1962 war that uh, caused, in a a sense, a deep rupture in the relationship. And since then, India has carried, especially India's strategic establishment, has carried these psychological wounds, as it were, which have, haven't quite healed. And uh, every time China does something like this, an incursion onto the Indian side, the general response from the establishment is that China is being hostile and China is trying to assert its dominance over, over a country it very clearly considers to be secondary or inferior to, to China. So this is so we see elements of this this particular syndrome in this in the in the present clash that has happened. On the maritime side, I'd like to say this: that New Delhi has been somewhat uncomfortable with China's activities in the Indian Ocean region in the past for the past about ten years or so, or a little more than that. So it's in 2008, December, when the Chinese first sent their anti-piracy task force uh, into the Indian Ocean region. And at that point, India was wary. It was a bit suspicious about why the Chinese were doing it, but still came to accept it because really this was driven by an organic need. There was a need for, you know, international uh, support for what was happening off the coast of Somalia and in the Gulf of Aden. And uh, China was well within its rights to send its ships to also protect some of its trade. But I think since then what has happened is that the Indians think that the Chinese contingents that are coming into the Indian Ocean regions are somehow too big for the task or too sophisticated for the task. So, and especially when the Chinese submarines come into our region, there is there is great disquiet because submarines, as we know very well, have really no part to play in anti-piracy. The first time the Chinese sent these submarines was in 2014, when uh, actually 2013, but in 2014, when the Chinese sent a submarine that docked in Colombo, 
Indian experts sat up and took notice. So for India, that was a clear sign that the Chinese were in some ways trying to make, make space for themselves in India's neighborhood. And this came at a time when India-Sri Lanka relations weren't at its very best. And there was, in fact, an instance where the Indian national security advisor very clearly warned the, the, his Sri Lankan counterpart that uh, this sort of activity is not going to be accepted by India. Uh, now, as some of us who look at China's maritime deployments in the region, the way we see it is that what China is doing in this in this space really is to study the the operational environment of the Indian Ocean region, and that could only mean that they intend to broaden their footprint in the region. Second, uh, the fact that there is this constant reference to China's rights and interests, what China must do to protect its rights and interests in the Indian Ocean region. And as we know very well, that the white paper, the Chinese defense white paper, both in 2015 and also 2019, actually talks about, you know, far seas deployments. It talks about open seas protection. Uh, And China, we know that has hitherto had a strategy maritime strategy that focuses in the Pacific. But now that they are talking about expeditionary operations, they are talking about rights and interests in the distant seas, it means that they are going to be sending in their ships into the Indian Ocean. Lastly, and most importantly, was the point that you that you mentioned was the modernization of the Chinese Navy. And it strikes me that just in the past two or three years, there's been a few occasions on which the chief of naval staff Indian chief of naval staff has spoken about China's modernization to say that we don't understand why is it that China wants to modernize its navy in the way that it is doing. And he has pointed to the fact that there are aircraft carriers that are being developed, you know, the SSN program, the nuclear submarine program, the amphibious ships that are coming up, the ballistic missile and cruise missile programs. And also the fact that China is sending these sophisticated destroyers, these uh, the frigates, the type 52 Cs, you know, Uh, the type 54As all into the Indian Ocean means that there is more ambition that China sees for itself in the the region. And that is a source of disquiet for India. So I would say that what's happening on the maritime domain at the moment is, is a bit of a concern for India, especially given the backdrop of the Galwan incident, or rather the incident in northern Ladakh, where we see that the Chinese have actually come to dominate India. So our sense is that if the Chinese come to dominate on the land, and also make their presence felt at sea, then in, this is going to be a bit of a pincer grip for China. And that is also, you know, in the, in the popular Indian imagination, this is also what we call the string of pearls. So this is going to be a manifestation of that string of pearls. And that is, again, deeply unsettling for a lot of Indian observers. Colin, let me ask you for a third-party opinion of this, and I'll just turn the next question to you then. What's your opinion of the way that India has responded to the Maritime Silk Road and Belt and Road initiatives, both of which are resulting in a lot of Chinese enclaves, whether they're naval bases or logistics hubs, popping up in areas that India feels are in its near abroad? I mean, just to share a broader perspective to that question is that, you know, ultimately, Southeast Asian countries, uh, I mean, only a few of them, you know, have direct or a much greater interest when it comes to you know investments in South Asia, the biggest trade partner is nonetheless India, of course. But you know India's rejection of the Belt and Road Initiative, or you know in general, you know the Maritime Silk Road Initiative, for instance, wouldn't have as big as impact on Southeast Asia's dealings with China. So you know what we are seeing here so far is that Southeast Asia has been pursuing parallel tracks of economic integration with the two neighbors. So on the one hand, we're looking at you know, Southeast Asian countries pursuing back and road with China, and you know on the other hand, pursuing you know other forms of economic you know linkages with India as well. And ultimately, the sense would go that if India one day would join BRI, it's going to of course be very helpful to Southeast Asia. But at least for now, Southeast Asian countries don't see particularly negative impact from India's rejection of BRI because, you know, ultimately, not having India joining BRI right now, I mean, gives Southeast Asia countries quite a wide berth of options and and other strategic options uh, to pursue when it comes to, you know, these sort of economic linkages with its dialogue partners. So, in a way, it is as if we are talking about not putting all the eggs into one basket. And, you know, right now, the thing is, 
the BRI, because of the pandemic, hasn't been progressing as well as it was originally intended uh, by the Chinese leadership. So hopefully we might potentially be seeing coming on track again. But until that happens, all these other parallel developments continue to be very relevant to Southeast Asia. Now, the thing is, when we talk about the Maritime Silk Road, you know, and how Southeast Asian countries view that. I mean, I want to bring the case of Singapore, for example. I mean, the thing is, it was interesting because in some ways, Singapore was involved to a certain degree in China's Maritime Silk Road ventures in Indian Ocean. For example, uh, in the case of Guada, in, in the case of Sri Lanka, for example, Singapore companies played certain capacity in terms of being, you know, a third party uh, intermediary or being a sort of a, a sort of a second partner in, in the venture. Uh, one reason for that is has to do with the credibility as well as the credentials of the Chinese companies involved. Until very recently, Chinese companies had certain problems in trying to put themselves on the international stage when it comes to striking up those port uh, development infrastructure uh, ventures. And usually, Singapore has been selected as a partner to these joint ventures for a few reasons. One is got to do with the Singapore brand name, in a sense. And because you know more people know about Singapore than those Chinese companies. And Singapore being you know a, a sort of a, a maritime trading nation with a rather developed port uh, infrastructure as well as a financial infrastructure tend to sort of add some credentials to this joint venture. So that is why Singapore finds a, a sort of a, a rather lucrative role to play in these ventures. And of course, you know, not to mention that Singapore was selected last year also because, you know, most of the business partners that those Chinese companies get into contact with you know, are ethnic Chinese. I mean, if you consider that Singapore is 70% ethnic Chinese and, you know, those who will get involved in these businesses are largely dominated by ethnic Chinese. And not to mention that we have key ethnic Chinese Singaporean business lobbies within China and in Singapore, which thereby pr provided that linkage, allowing the Chinese companies a much easier task when it comes to liaising and when it comes to communication. So that is the reason why Singapore plays a rather interesting role in that. One of my colleagues in RSIS, uh, Alan Chong, has been looking at this issue in a much uh, greater detail, and I believe he will have much to share. So hopefully in future, you know, Jared, if you decide to go deep into this topic, you know, I recommend my colleague Alan Chong to be your guest uh, for this podcast. But this is to highlight that, you know, there are some business interests for China's buy and road initiative, especially the Maritime Silk Road initiative in Indian Ocean. But we do see this as a parallel track of initiative. So India's rejection of these uh, Maritime Silk Road doesn't really come across as something particularly negative to Southeast Asia. Thanks. Obviously, I'm going to come back to you. Your article, which we mentioned before, the will the India-China border conflict lead to a naval war? Is the Indian Navy equipped for that conflict? Judge, there's a very keen sense in New Delhi that the country uh, must be prepared for a limited conflict with China. And Indian observers reckon that, you know, given the force strength that we have at the moment and the sort of critical attributes that you need to dominate China in the Indian Ocean, the Indian Navy might actually really be in a position to do so. So what we've seen, and this is not something that, that is recent. It is since actually 2017 that we have been planning for such a scenario in the Indian Ocean region, which is when uh, the Indian Navy started what it calls the mission-based deployments, that we started sending our warships into the choke points of the Indian Ocean, particularly on the east, on the Malacca Strait side, the Lombok Strait, the Sunda, the Ombai Veta. These are the, this is, this is the region that the Indian Navy is really interested in patrolling. And that, to my mind, has to do with the fact that a lot of Chinese activity in the region, a lot of Chinese ships in the region actually make their way through these straits. So, so we have, in a sense, been really preparing for such a scenario. We have been doing so in the sense that we now have, uh, you know, a whole chain of radar stations set up both in the Andaman Nicobar Islands as well as on the east coast of India, where we are constantly getting information about about Chinese activity, plus also information about non-traditional security threats in the region. Plus, we've also now got this fusion center in Gurgaon. Uh, in near Delhi, wherein we are collating a lot of information about uh, maritime mo movements happening in the 
in the Bay of Bengal as well as the Andaman Seas and trying to form some kind of an operational picture about what are the Chinese up to in the region. The third and I think the most important facet uh, or aspect of uh, what India is doing is to have a very active liaison with the uh, Bay of Bengal countries. So the sense that some of us have here in New Delhi is that what Chinese are trying to perhaps do is that you know trying to use their Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt and Road Projects, to have greater naval presence in these places. And, and plus, this is going to be something that's organic because these countries are going to request China to send in its forces to protect these assets like we've seen in the case of Pakistan. You know, with the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the Pakistanis are on record having said that we need more Chinese warships to come and protect this because, because there's fear that the Indians might at, at, at some point try and try and attack some of these installations. I'm not making the case that the that the Bay of Bengal countries will use the similar similar logic, but they could always say that we need more Chinese assets to come and protect what, you know, our, our infrastructure projects. So, uh, so we have an active liaison, or New Delhi has an active liaison with all of these countries, and we're trying to find out what exactly the Chinese are doing in the region. Uh, but the sense, again, in India is that if we don't prolong this conflict for too long, if we can somehow interdict Chinese shipping, we can deter uh, Chinese deployments in the region. We can somehow play on China's Malacca dilemma. And then we shall have the better of the exchange at sea. So this means that China could well dominate us on land in, in certain pockets. But the sea is our domain. The sea is our space. And we will. And the seas really belong to India, especially when it comes to the Indian Ocean and, and areas around the Andaman Islands. So that's what I think right now is, is what the equation is looking like. Yeah, until five or six months ago, I hadn't heard of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. How would you describe those islands and what's their strategic importance? So the Andaman and Nicobar Islands are actually a critical asset. The islands are situated in the eastern Indian Ocean, almost 800 nautical miles away from mainland India. And so a lot of us consider it to be a forward outpost. Now, this is a chain of 572 islands that spread across a region of 450 nautical miles. And the southern tip of these islands is not very far from Indonesia, which actually means that these these islands actually act as a force multiplier. They they increase our reach, the Indian Navy's reach in the in the in the Indian Ocean. So for so for two or three reasons, I think the Andamans are going to be critical in a conflict between India and China. I mean, hypothetical conflict between between the two countries. So first, I think the fact is that the Andaman Nicobar has a very vantage location in the Eastern Indian Ocean, and that it overlooks. The, the six degree channel and the 10 degree channel, which are those two main sea routes through which a vast majority of, of regional trade flows, including a lot of Chinese oil and gas shipments, as well as cargo shipments. These islands are also a staging post for combat operations. So the Indian Navy does carry out a number of active op operations from these islands. And therefore, this, uh, these islands can, can actually host ships that don't have the sea legs to by themselves, you know, sail out from the east coast of India and go right up to the Malacca. So this is like a, like a base that is right in the middle of the sea. Third, I think this is a logistics hub, which is again very important. It's a launch pad for reconnaissance and surveillance missions. And it has various facilities for docking ships, for accommodation of personnel, communication, basing drones, etc. A lot of drone operations are now carried out from the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. So what it allows India to do is it allows India to have a have a good vision of what's happening in the in the regions surrounding the islands, especially the six degree channel and the ten degree channel. So in that respect, I think the Andaman and Nicobar Islands is a good way of signaling to China that this this space is something that is that that India virtually controls. And, and if the Chinese get too hostile or get too aggressive in the Indian Ocean, we can use these, these islands to send a very clear message to China. So I think in, that's the real importance of the Andaman and Nicobar. Thank you. And just a follow up then, uh, the Indian efforts in patrol and surveillance from those islands seem to me to be an indication that India would pursue a sea denial strategy in the event of conflict. Is that what, you're, what you would say as well? Look, a sea denial strategy is something Indian experts are thinking about. Uh, a sea denial strategy is something that they think is very much plausible. But I also think that the fact remains it's going to be a bit hard to execute. And I say that for two reasons. First is that, you know, identifying Chinese shipping in the space is going to be extremely important for mm. or it's going to be extremely hard for, for India. Chinese cargo isn't shipped in China flag vessels. 
And the fact is that all China flagged vessels carry more than just Chinese cargo. They also carry international cargo. So even assuming that you were able to identify Chinese ships, what would the Indian strategy be? Would we, would we stop these ships? Would we detain them? Would we board them? Or, or would we fire at them? You know, certainly you can't, you can't be firing at them. So what, what exactly is the plan that really no one has, has really an idea of? Second, I think what's, what, what might happen is that if India disrupts regular shipping in these international sea lanes, it might be seen as a hostile act by the neutrals, which is by other countries. You know, we, we know that for a long time, countries like Indonesia, uh, Malaysia have had a problem with the, the fact that we were in some ways militarizing the Andaman and Nicobar Islands. If we use these islands, we use Indian shipping uh, or Indian warships to target regional shipping. This is something that's not, not going to go down well with South, Southeast Asia. This is something that's not going to go down well with Bay of Bengal countries, because mm-hmm. they would think that we are in some ways militarizing the littoral. And this is this is this is this is going to be completely uncalled for and unwarranted. So I think that uh, whilst it is plausible using these uh, islands and and CC denial strategy, as it were, you know, implementing it in in practice is um, is is a hard proposition. And I think India will lead to do a lot of planning. Plus, I would also add mm. here that uh, the Chinese Navy is no pushover. It's the second most powerful navy in the world. I mean, I just spoke about the Chinese naval modernization, the fact that they have been sending these ships into the Indian Ocean region. They could do a lot more. They could send a lot of more submarines, a lot of more of their amphibious ships into the region. So if the Chinese wanted, they could dominate the space. So I think that in this Indian understanding that somehow we will use an interdiction strategy, we will use a sea denial strategy to push back China is overly optimistic. I think we've got to consider the fact that whilst we may have the tactical advantage in certain respects, you know, be it logistics or be it air cover, tactical air cover, the fact is that the Chinese are extremely powerful and that fighting them in the Andaman Sea, in the Bay of Bengal, is not going to be as easy as some maritime practitioners in India, some commentators seem to suggest. Mm. Thanks, Colin. I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit to ask you the next question is, Do you have any insight into the Chinese strategy for dealing with the Indian Navy? Would they attempt to push into the Indian Ocean or is just Mm. maintaining control of the entrance at the Straits of Malacca sufficient? Mm. Yes. Now, uh, this uh, Malacca dilemma is something that continues to be real. Uh, It continues to occupy the minds of the Chinese policymakers. If you consider that, you know, oil production in China continues to be upstream by, you know, energy demands. So for the longest time to come, we're going to see China relying on oil export, uh, imports, largely from the Middle East and Africa. Uh, the trends uh, are pretty clear for us to see, uh, notwithstanding the fact that China has in recent days been diversifying those supplies from elsewhere, like for example, uh, the Russian Far East through Siberia. But the thing is, be that as it may, uh, right now, of course, I, I do not want to disagree with what my friend Abhijit has said. I mean, certainly the Chinese uh, Navy has been modernizing in, in pretty huge strides these days. And if you have seen the very recent reports that come out from uh, you know various sources, especially from the U.S. Uh, Department of Defense, for example, it's pretty clear that the Chinese uh, Navy is going towards a, a, a rather unprecedented position in the coming decade. When they, assuming that, you know, economic development continues uh, to be healthy for them, which is uh, still a question mark when it comes to, you know, the current pandemic situation and domestic issues uh, that has to do with poverty, elevation needs, as well as unemployment, for example. And how they are able to sustain this modernization, how are they able to continue uh, with their programs in terms of not just modernizing the hardware and software, uh, also continuing with, you know, all the deployments throughout the region, increasingly in the Indian Ocean. Now, so far we have seen the Chinese being able to search assets, especially during the first Doklam crisis. I think Abhijit will, will be able to apprise us uh, much more uh, deeply into this particular crisis back in 2017. And in fact, that was the incident that led to the Indian Navy coming up with a new approach to deal with the Chinese Navy through what they call the mission-based deployment approach. And the Doklam crisis saw you know, at least 11 to 14 Chinese Navy ships of all types operating throughout the Indian Ocean and in its adjacent region. Right? But the thing is, right now we are seeing you know, this sort of search in assets to be more of 
uh, an exception than the norm so far for a few reasons. One has to do with the fact that currently the Chinese Navy has to rely largely on access um, to friendly ports for replenishment in times of peace. The question is, in times of war, will the Chinese Navy be able to avail itself to these facilities other than, say, for example, Pakistan is going to you know, be the, be the one uh, particular area that is going to give China much more leeway. But you know, in times of the conflict, how will the other South Asian littorals react? Will they give China access to their ports and their bases for replenishment? And what, what roles will they play in support of the Chinese naval activities in the Indian Ocean? Be, and besides that, you know, the other thing that I will, I will look at it is, you know, so far the Chinese have been able to rely on an increasingly larger fleet of combat support vessels that they've been building uh, over the past few years. The Type 903 series, for example, and you know, the, the biggest so far is the Type 901 that is designed to support carrier strike group operations. And they are trying to build these ships. And they have been, you know, putting into paces, you know, how they will operate these in conjunction with the other assets. But so far, we have not yet seen large-scale, multi-formational type of training uh, that take place that will allow them the ability to dominate uh, the Indian Ocean battle space for now. So what we are seeing here, the likelihood of seeing smaller flotillas of Chinese warships operating throughout the Indian Ocean the bigger question would be whether they will be able to integrate their, their actions, are they able to coordinate their actions in a coherent manner, and how do they protect each other, how do they you know, manage to bring to bear the available firepower and sensor capabilities for the maximum effect in what I would deem as unfamiliar terrain. And finally, I think one thing that we, we often forget is China doesn't have a direct Indian Ocean seaboard, and I think that presents a very huge disadvantage for China. Whatever seaboard that China will enjoy in the Indian Ocean will be indirect, largely through you know, Guada, for example, through Pakistan. Now, the thing is, will these access continue to be secure in times of a conflict? I mean, let's put a scenario where if there is a war between India and China, wouldn't you know, separatist elements in Baluchistan, for example, take advantage of this situation to try to create more disturbances to the China-Pakistan economic corridor, for example. And, you know, how will that affect China's access to these facilities in Pakistan? Will these bases be secure from Indian uh, strikes, for example? So I think, in a way, we are looking here at something that is permanent of a nature that is going to be rather debilitating against the Chinese naval force projection capability, and that, that is geography. And, you know, it is by no means uh, certain that China is able to project forces across the South China Sea and through the, through the, through those choke points in Southeast Asia without meeting opposition along the way. So, I mean, that will remind us of, you know, the, the sort of the debacle that, uh, we observe, um, during the Battle of Tsushima to recall the Russian Baltic fleet, you know, making all the way down, you know, through the Indian Ocean in order to reach the Tsushima Strait in order to battle the Japanese, right? So, you know, by then, it will be too late. By then, certainly morale will be low. And along the way, if opposition is met, combat power is going to be reduced before it could even be on scene. So, I mean, all these are multiple factors that I believe I've, I've not yet exhausted all everything in the list, but I think these are certainly things that we have to consider beyond looking at China's um, naval modernization uh, as, as an ongoing phenomenon. Yeah, you mentioned uh, it wasn't an exhaustive list, but I think we could talk about this for four hours and not run out of options. I mean, you both have <laughs> already brought up several issues that I hadn't considered. Uh, one, the absolutely massive presence of white shipping that pass that's neutral shipping passing through uh, all the straits that we've mentioned. Two, the fact that the geography, well, while on paper, I think the balance between the fleets clearly favors the Chinese. The geography clearly favors the Indians. Uh, this would be an expeditionary operation for the Chinese if they were to attempt something. What role do the two fishing fleets play in this? I know the Chinese fish extensively in the Indian Ocean, but is there a, is there a role for them? Uh, obviously, I'll ask you first. 
Well, uh, you know, when it comes to the fishing fleets, I would just say this, that uh, we've seen more Chinese fishing fleet in the Indian Ocean than has been the case in the past. Mm. And uh, one of the things that the Indian analysts have noted is that some of these fishing fleets that are coming to the Indian Ocean are now protected by Coast Guard contingents, mm. which, uh, which, is, which is rather strange, because this is not something that we've ever seen happen earlier. A lot of these fishing fleets actually end up in the in the Western Indian Ocean. They're bound for that that region. They're found off the coast of Africa. That's where the real problem is. But that also may have to do with the fact that the Chinese trawlers have been active in the Bay of Bengal for quite some time now. And and what the Bay of Bengal really has now, as we were discussing during the previous podcast with with Jay and Jared, you know, is these huge dead zones where there's actually no fish. So mm. the Chinese really have no incentive to be very active in the Bay of Bengal. They could be if they wanted to. But the fact is that if we just keep the fishing fleet part aside, uh, fishing fleets is, of course, important because it signifies China's growing footprint in the in the global mm. commerce. But I think the more important part from an Indian perspective is the fact that, you know, China's non-military presence in the Indian Ocean has been growing. And this mm. is where where it's important to highlight what the Chinese strategy really is in the Indian Ocean, which is that they're not at the moment too keen to dominate the space militarily. Uh, mm. They're interested in asserting their economic interests. So fishing fleets is a part of that. It's economic interests. You cannot deny the fact that, you know, there's there's Chinese fishing fishing boats in in the high seas. And they're doing what's, what's, what's good for China. But the fact is that they're also sending a lot of these uh, intelligence gathering ships, you know, survey vessels, research vessels into the Indian Ocean. One of them was caught somewhat close to the Andaman Islands in August last year. And that's what led to a great furor in the Indian you know, security establishment. We confronted the Chinese. We told them that, you know, this is, a, this is an incursion into Indian waters. The Chinese apologized for doing that, said that it was just passing through the Indian EZs that it did not intend to collect any information about, you know, Indian installations, etc. But the fact is that China is now present in these waters. China's non-military ships are now present in these waters. Take also the case of China's mining ships. A lot of these mining ships have been operating in the southern Indian Ocean. There was an instance last year where some of these, or rather earlier this year, where some of these ships actually used drones. Now, drones is the other thing, uh, undersea drones is the other thing that worries India which means that the Chinese can or can operate these zones, the EZs, close to the Andamans, if not uh, if not India's territorial waters. So that means, and it's going to be very hard for India to detect these drones. So I think what's really happening in the Indian Ocean, and this is where I partly agree with Colin, is that of course the Chinese have uh, have constraints in the space, but really their strategy is not one of full spectrum dominance of the kind we see in South China Sea. I think what they're trying to do. On the Indian Ocean side is this salami slicing of Indian influence. They're somehow trying to insert themselves as a player in the geopolitics of the region, in, in you know, strategic, uh, strategic developments that are happening in the space. They somehow want to be a stakeholder. They want to be a player. And they're doing it really slowly. They're doing it. It's, it's very incremental and gradual. And there's no way that we can really push back China through a military strategy. So this goes back to your previous question, Jerry, when you asked me the whether a sea denial strategy is going to work. I think the sea denial strategy will not work because it will never come to that. We can't deny them the seas when they are not being overtly aggressive. That's that's the whole plan, not to be aggressive, to somehow, you know, surreptitiously, slowly, gradually just take over the space. And I think we don't quite have a, a strategy that can somehow uh, meet this challenge or be commensurate to this challenge. That's what I think the real problem is. Colin, anything yeah. to add to that? Thank you, Jared. And I, I concur with what Abhijit has said. Just add a, a few more things is that, of course, um, we, we have here a, a lot of those arguments put out there by Chinese sources saying, you know, our fishing fleet is all commercial. But look, the Chinese fishing fleet operate under a cooperative system. Uh, they belong to the state. And Chinese fishing cooperatives especially those that were involved in distance uh, fishing, for example, uh, those that you found in the Indian Ocean, they actually have communist party cells that operate within that. I mean, I mean that actually provides a, you know, a source of political control over their activities. And in a way, that also provides an avenue uh, for these uh, fishing fleets to have a peacetime and a wartime role to a certain extent. 
uh, this is nothing new because, you know, back then when the Chinese uh, were fighting a civil war, they'd be using fishing boats, and one of which primarily being intelligence gathering. This is going to be a key mission um, that the Chinese distant fishing fleets will be tasked to perform as a sort of a site, a sort of secondary mission or secondary task uh, for, for, for themselves. And, you know, it is uh, not strange to see Chinese fishing vessels engaging in these sort of activities, providing what they call human intelligence. And, you know, if, I'm, if I could recall, you know, one incident that was, uh, that happened in the South China Sea uh, many years back in this place called the Half Moon Shore, for example. This, this particular feature uh, is within the Philippine EEZ. And there was one instance where, you know, a Chinese fishing vessel was grounded because of the shallow waters. And, and of course, they were taken uh, into custody by the Philippine forces. And what they found was that, you know, something was interesting. Uh, you know, th those guys up on the fishing vessels, they do not have the tanned leather skin that usually you'll find in fishermen. All those guys on, on, on the ship, they were rather fair skin. They looked a rather, uh, you know, condition, <laughs> uh, not for fishing actually. And, and their hands were smooth and they were found to have, you know, rather classified maps uh, in, in their possession as well as a rather sophisticated GPS as well as other types of uh, night surveillance optics. We, we wouldn't be surprised that, you know, fishing fleets that operate in the Indian Ocean, at least some of these vessels, do have these uh, capabilities and they will be tasked from time to time to perform that. But I would like to add to what Abhijit has said about uh, Chinese survey and oceanographic research vessels. This is something that has only become more prominent in the past one decade. Largely in part because the Chinese, they have been able to put into commission a new fleet of these you know, scientific vessels that can go further out and carry out a host of activities a few years back, I visited the first uh, Institute of Oceanography that is in Qingdao. And they, they, they proudly showcased what they acquired in the southwestern Indian Ocean. Um, things like, you know, um, underwater volcanic vents uh, that they actually plucked up uh, from the seabed. And they show it as, you know, something of, you know, of a scientific endeavor or, or achievement that, that, that they have. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is that the Chinese do have some legitimate uh, marine concerns uh, and interests in Indian Ocean. And a, a good part of these missions do conform to international standards. For example, uh, in, com in conformity with the International Seabed Authority, uh, uh, for instance, when it comes to their expeditions in the southwestern uh, Indian Ocean. But my argument would be that a, a good part of all this sort of data that is collected uh, through these expeditions, uh, whether you're talking about the salinity of the, of, of the water, you're talking about the, the, the seabed top, uh, to, uh, topography, uh, you're talking about, you know, the other, uh, you know, natural elements, um, that you, that you will be interested, uh, in the maritime environment. All of these data do fit into the broader maritime domain awareness of China. I mean, the thing is, you have to take into account that these days they have been emphasizing upon civil military fusion and you know these um you know marine scientific data is a very good example of how civil military fusion can be brought into play when it gives china a much better awareness and appreciation of what i would call patterns of life in the indian ocean that will one day be very useful for them for contingency planning in the indian ocean so i do agree with abhijit i mean they do they do have geographical constraints and they are trying to sort of compensate for this through a whole slew of activities ranging from human intelligence to what you would deem as innocuous um, scientifically marine scientific research that will give them much better appreciation of the environment that they will operate in in times of war in the Indian Ocean. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Abhiji Singh and Colin Ko. Abhiji, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? So I'm uh, actually on Twitter, and uh, I also, I mean, I, I'm active on Facebook. I've, my my email uh, is is available to anyone that would wish to contact me. Um, it's it's on the ORF website. A lot of my work is actually hosted on the ORF website. Uh, I've uh, I've been working on a few things lately. I have a project on naval shipbuilding, in which I've looked at India shipbuilding program. Uh, which I'm planning to expand. The paper has just been published at, on the ORF website, but I'm thinking of expanding that into a mono, monograph. 
I'm also looking at some blue economy issues in uh, in the Bay of Bengal. Uh, this is uh, this is something that we plan to do about a year back, but uh, because of this whole India-China skirmish that has happened, we are quite taken with the uh, with with hard security issues at the moment. But uh, but I've, I'm coming back to blue economy and, ma- and marine governance. It's another issue that's that's also a live issue in the South China Sea. But from an Indian perspective, I think it's the Bay of Bengal and the Arabian Sea that's most important. So I have these two projects at the moment. Uh, but the third, I'm also working on a book uh, on the Indo-Pacific and where I'm looking at Indo-Pacific equations, developing equations. I'm also tr- trying to look at some of the myths that that pervade this whole space about about what's really possible and what's and what's not. So this is uh, so I'm intending to make this a little different from what has so far been talked about, which is just to highlight the possibilities. And whilst the possibilities are great, I think also there are inherent constraints in the way that uh, regional countries uh, cannot come together and participate in in, in um, on certain matters and certain issues. So that's what I'm. That's what my three projects are going to be in the future. Thank you very much. And Colin, where can we find you online and what are you working on? Thank you. Um, I mean, I, I do have a, a profile page on the RSS website and most of my works uh, will be hosted there. But, you know, for, for real-time uh, updates of my work uh, and the things I'm looking at, usually I use Twitter. Uh, I do use Facebook for, for work, actually. So you can find me on Twitter where, you know, I, I do post uh, quite regularly on, on things of interest, um, mainly in the maritime domain. Um, currently, I'm working on uh, two projects um, due to the fact that you know I have some other responsibilities. This project has been in the gestational period for quite a long time. So I'm looking at you know um, the code of conduct in the South China Sea, looking at it largely from the naval arms control perspective. Um, and the second project that I'm looking at is, is more long-term, is to delve into the issue of submarine proliferation uh, in Southeast Asia and trying to look at the all the various cooperative mechanisms uh, and to do an update uh, of what scenarios that we'll be confronted with in the future when it comes to future incidents. So these are the two main projects that I'm looking at. Well, thank you, Colin, and thank you both again for joining us. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Sea Control is edited by Keegan Ingersoll and Ed Salo.